Welcome to the General Soup Podcast, a podcast about all things related to special education accountability and support systems, also known as general supervision. I'm Sarah Dutre. And I'm Susan Hayes, and we will be your hosts from the National Center for Systemic Improvement, or NCSI, on this exploration of general supervision systems, and also the world of soup jokes. Hi, this is Susan, and Sarah and I are glad to be with you all again. This is our third podcast episode of 2021, and we have enjoyed the opportunity to dish on all things general supervision with each other and with all of you, our audience. So thanks for being with us. And given our soup theme, we'd like to once again kick off today's episode with a little culinary chit chat. Suze, what soup are you enjoying right now? So my family is really into something. It's not healthy. I feel like my soup last month was like legitimately a healthy choice with spinach and chickpeas and sweet potatoes. So my family's really obsessed with cheeseburger soup, <laughs> but it's really tasty and it's November. It's cold in Vermont. I keep choosing cold weather soups year round. It does kind of taste like a cheeseburger. It's much um, more time consuming to make than a cheeseburger. So I've been advocating for like, let's just make cheeseburgers instead of cheeseburger soup, which requires a lot more effort on my part, but the family really enjoys it. And um, it's somewhat redeemable because in addition to cheese and meat, it also includes carrots that work somehow, even though it's unexpected. So I am pleased to share my offering today is cheeseburger soup. Wow. I'm excited to try it. I haven't heard of it, let alone made it yet. Just make a cheeseburger (laughs) for the record. Yeah. We're probably more likely to make cheeseburgers at, at this house, but the soup I've been making, I've been eating a lot of soup. Um, I have to admit I've been really busy. So most of it has been from Sam's club or Costco that I warm up, but I did make soup this week. I love myself a good olive garden minestrone soup. Mm. Um, I think back to when I was in college and you could go get unlimited breadsticks with your soup and that could be your full meal. I'm very familiar with that deal. That was a great deal when you're in college. Yeah. So I'm going to share a recipe in the notes for my favorite copycat olive garden that I like to make a crock pot of and eat off for a couple of weeks. That sounds delicious. I'm thinking about whether I would have the energy to also make breadsticks to go with it, but probably, probably not, but the soup <laughs> alone, that sounds, that sounds really good. So as usual, we will put links to these recipes in the show notes. Um, and thanks for the feedback we've gotten from folks. Um, we love to hear that you all are enjoying the soup recipes. So maybe we'll do a listener suggested soup recipe for a future episode and you all can share with us, uh, what soups you're enjoying. Um, So as a reminder, this is, of course, our general soup podcast, short for general supervision. Um, And as was true for our previous episodes, we will discuss all things general supervision on this podcast and we'll organize ourselves around the soup theme. Although today's episode is going to be slightly different and that we're going to be fielding and discussing questions from you all, our listeners. So Welcome to our first mailbag episode. Um, We don't have any clever connection between the mailbag and the soup theme. So just go with the mixed theme approach. But as in past episodes, we will first set the table and provide a little bit of context around the questions we'll be talking about today. And then we'll move right into our soup du jour, 
which is uh, an unpacking of the questions we've received from our listeners. And then we will digest and further reflect on the questions that we discussed before ending with our dessert or cheese plate, which is always a new resource or resources from NCSI. And we're excited to share those with you. Um, So Sarah, why don't you set the table for us and provide some context on the focus of our discussion uh, questions and episode today? Thanks, Susan. At the National Center for Systemic Improvement, or NCSI, one of our main objectives is helping states optimize their general supervision systems to improve outcomes for students receiving special education. The outcome we hope to see from our technical assistance efforts that include broad supports like this podcast and the resources we develop and more intensive supports when we work directly with state teams is increased state capacity to effectively implement accountability and support systems. And we always hope that those systems will both ensure compliance with IDEA and improve academic and functional results for our students. When we base our systems, even our compliance systems in results and the results we want to see We are ensuring compliance with the purpose of IDEA and not focusing only on the procedural aspects of the law. States are continuously adjusting their accountability and support systems, engaging in continuous improvement, but also responding to contextual changes, which has never been more clear than over the past couple of years as we've adjusted to to school closures and changing circumstances due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And another contextual piece influencing states right now is that OSEP has been developing further its differentiated monitoring and support work, and it is developing a more defined framework around general supervision and the expectations for what states have in place. Given those changing contexts and expectations, as well as turnover in states, NCSI receives many TA requests related to helping states implement and importantly, describe their general supervision systems. Today, we want to talk through several questions we have received from states specifically focused on the balance and interaction of compliance and results. Susan, let's dig into the questions. Want to pull the first one out of the mailbag? Sure. Let's see what the first one says. So question number one is, what does an effective and efficient monitoring system look like? Wow, Sus, that's That's a great question. A heavy hitter from the start. Let's break it into two pieces. Let's like break those two things apart, effective and efficient. I feel like right now, a lot of states are starting to look at their monitoring systems more objectively and to evaluate them using data related to the effectiveness of their activities and connecting that to outcomes they want to see. There are aspects of our monitoring and support systems that we really can measure. We can look to see, for example, whether districts where we've provided additional training do better on the compliance monitoring later on, or if there's a shift, hopefully, in their results or other ways of measuring practice. And the best example of that is the bottom line is that to be effective, a monitoring system must be able to identify and correct LEA noncompliance. This means that accountability or how we find noncompliance and other items to address has to be directly related to the supports to help create compliance or improvement. We have to both be able to find the problems 
but also we have to be able to help LEAs fix them to be effective. And that can be done sometimes proactively or in response to what we learn through our accountability activities, which are probably more what we call monitoring. However, there are other important elements of an effective monitoring system that are harder to measure that I think we've seen in our experience are as important as maybe those measurable items. And those include the coherence of the system, really how well it's understood by the multiple stakeholders taking part in it and also observing it. When we work with states intensively on their monitoring systems, we always begin with a visioning activity where we talk about what is the purpose of that system? What is the role of the state? Kind of getting to the why and really unpacking that with a state team. And it seems that once you have that down, that really sheds light on how you might measure the effectiveness of that system when you understand why you're doing it. That leads us to efficiency. The second part of the question, I think the efficiencies that we see in monitoring systems are also often related to coherence, that the more efficient systems really are coordinated across efforts, both within special education monitoring and accountability, and then also across an agency, right? Across the different areas. The um, most efficient systems we see really provide proactive supports. We're not testing LEAs on something we haven't taught them, right? Kind of practice we'd expect to see in a classroom and then involving those LEAs and giving them responsibility for some of their activities. Some examples of efficient systems probably look like one letter to an LEA each year that provides them with their annual determination, any findings based on their SPP APR data, their determination of significant disproportionality, and maybe even the results of other monitoring activities rather than those, those elements being spread out and separate, especially how we communicate that about them. It means that the LEA is working within one timeline and can make connections between those pieces. Another thing I might expect to see in an efficient monitoring system is a cyclical monitoring system that has a, a pre-work year, that part of that cycle is that LEAs receive the protocols and resources to conduct a self-assessment or help themselves prepare prior to engaging in the monitoring activities with the state. So I think that's probably a question we'll get into more through the other questions. We could probably talk about for an hour what we see, but let's move on to our next question, which I think helps add to that. And Suze, if you'll take this one, the, the second question is, what are some effective strategies for ensuring compliance in addition to monitoring for noncompliance on the back end? Yeah, thanks for that, Sarah. I think that's a great question. And thanks to the states that um, put these forward for us to discuss. So I think the way that, that we would talk about it um, within NCSI is that ensuring compliance is really first and foremost about being proactive and communicating clearly to the field, the expectations of IDEA and of any state requirements, and therefore what the focus of the state monitoring activities would be. So we know historically that much of the focus of state monitoring activities um, have really been around ensuring LEA compliance via monitoring through such activities as cyclical reviews, whether that's based on a risk assessment or other data sources being on site, or particularly in the time of COVID, desk audits, interviews with uh, staff on site. And I think maybe one thing to consider is that the role of a state education agency is really as much about providing support and guidance 
and capacity building for LEAs prior to monitoring than it is about the monitoring process or processes itself. So again, going back to communication, what steps can states take to proactively build LEA's understanding on the front end, again, of those federal and state requirements and build their capacity to implement those requirements? And then back to something you said, Sarah, really deepening the LEA sense of responsibility for implementing those requirements. And then the state monitoring system really serves as a check on those upfront efforts to communicate and promote compliance rather than the primary mechanism by which compliance is achieved. And we've been working on a new resource within NCSI. We've been so grateful for the input and ideas that we've received from states about what are some ways that LEAs can receive this information clearly, consistently. How can we proactively build that culture of compliance through uh, again, effective communication. So we've talked about things like even beginning at the state level and making sure that all SCA staff have a clear shared understanding of federal and state requirements so that everybody at the SCA level is singing out of the same songbook and sharing the same guidance and communication with LEAs and other stakeholders. We've talked about just uh, really high quality learning opportunities for LEAs around the state so that there's shared understanding of those compliance expectations. And then in addition to sort of universal opportunities for all LEAs to be hearing the same information and guidance, where might there be a need for targeted support to specific LEAs that either have had some challenges with compliance in the past or maybe at risk? Perhaps there's a new local special education director. So being thoughtful and strategic about where additional support and guidance might be helpful. States have also suggested uh, and shared with us the value, and Sarah mentioned this as well, of generating templates and tools that really ensure that LEAs are, are using compliant practices by using the, the tools and templates that states provide. Um, and then also really elevating effective district practice. So what are those strategies that are effective at the district level that states can help identify and raise up to say these are some, some lessons learned from our own district community about what's working? So those are some ideas for thinking about the balance of a monitoring system, the role it plays within this broader general supervision system to really promote compliance. And what are some things that can be done proactively on the front end around effective communication to in some ways potentially take some of the pressure off the monitoring on the back end if there's better front end understanding of what compliance looks like at the local level. And maybe that takes us into question three, which I will pose to Sarah, a state saying, I need special education compliance monitoring 101. Um, and there may be folks at the district level that would benefit from this as well. So what are those basic steps of identifying, correcting, verifying, and reporting noncompliance as outlined in IDEA? What a great question, Suze. And I think this pulls us back to what you just said, that one of the most important things a state can do is make sure that their state staff and LEAs have common, solid understandings of the basics. And this is one of those items where it's probably worth a refresher often on what these requirements are. And with that in mind, we work together with some of our colleagues at other OSEP funded technical assistance centers to develop two resources. 
And they are exactly this, a state guide on identifying, correcting, and reporting noncompliance in accordance with the IDA requirements and a visual one pager that, that accompanies it. And these tools would be great for going back and checking to check your understanding and to help build the capacity of others on your staff. But the most important thing to remember is that all of these steps must happen in an effective system. It has to identify, correct, verify, and you have to report in, in some cases, I'll I'll come back to that in a second, but we have to identify and define the problem and what must happen to correct it. Sometimes then we think of the state's role, skipping straight to verification of correction, which helps us know it's corrected, but probably the most important step is meaningful correction that we really need to be engaging on learning. What does it take to correct the problem we've identified? It is possible to close out a finding of noncompliance, to verify correction without digging into the root cause and looking at systemic fixes, but that generally gets us into a cycle of identifying the same problem over and over again. And verification is really how we know the problem is fixed. And then reporting is tricky because for reporting, we do report on the correction of noncompliance to OSEP, but only for the compliance indicators in the state performance plan and annual performance report. However, this doesn't mean that those are the only indicators and requirements that we should be monitoring on. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be recording that correction. So to demonstrate that you have an effective system for correcting noncompliance, identifying and correcting it, you'll want to record those findings that aren't with APR indicators, even though you only report on correction of noncompliance to OSEP for the indicators in the SPP and APR. Thanks, Sarah. I think that's super helpful. And I want to sort of pause and focus for a moment on verification of correction. So the third step that you described, because we know this can be challenging sometimes for states. So I'm going to put you in the hot seat again. Um, But our question four in our mailbag episode today is focused on verification. So what is the intent of memo 0902? And do you have any examples you can share of effective implementation of the requirement in that memo to verify correction of noncompliance? That's a great question, Suze. And I think This is a place where there has been a lot of emphasis and we're used to this now, maybe for the APR indicators, because we describe it every year in the APR, but it's really important to think about what's important about verification and why did it come about? And OSEP memo 0902 came about because OSEP learned that sometimes states were closing findings based on the completion of corrective actions. So I came to monitor Susan Charter School, and I found that you were not providing prior written notice before IEP meetings. And so I said, for your corrective action, you need to do a training for all of your teachers and case managers who run IEP meetings on prior written notice. So following that, you sent me the sign-in list of all the people that attended that meeting, and I considered that finding corrected. I didn't check to see if actually, if that had been effective, if they'd actually fixed the problem. And OSEP memo 0902 brings in two, what we like to call prongs of verification that are both important. And it's important to know again, what they're about. The first piece is that 
we have to ensure individual child correction. So if the finding that we've made, what we've identified as noncompliance, if that affected an individual child, and if it can be corrected, right? So this first piece doesn't apply if it's a timeline indicator because that timeline has passed and we may not be able to go back and make it compliant, but we can ensure they received what they were supposed to receive, even if it was late. But the first piece really is about ensuring each student received what they were intended to receive. And so if the finding of noncompliance is that my speech therapist left partway through the year and students did not receive the speech services on their IEP, that individual student correction is going to be going back to make sure those students received compensatory services if they needed that, right? I'm going to fix it for those students. Then the next piece, the review of subsequent data to look at compliance is really knowing, again, was my intervention as a state, whether I just made the finding, whether I directed the corrective actions or the LEA engaged in corrective actions on their own, was it effective? Verification of correction, the subsequent data really is the first step to looking at effectiveness is were they able to correct it? So this is going back the next year to say, in that example, have all the students at Susan's charter school (laughs) received the speech that is on their IEPs? And I don't have to do a full year of correction for that. That time period of correction is something we can differentiate. We have some flexibility there and it's a lever that states can use based on the level of noncompliance and some of that other work digging into really knowing what the root cause was to know how how much data do I really need to have to trust that this was corrected and that they're now correctly implementing the requirement? Thanks for unpacking that, Sarah. I think this is a question we've seen repeatedly. I, I think it is helpful to sort of walk through the requirement and as you described, sort of the origins of it and what, what problem it was designed to address. So appreciate you taking us through that. Okay, Suze, our final question for this episode is for you. And the question is, what is RDA and why are some states embracing a results orientation to their general supervision system? I love this question. So let's do a little bit of a history lesson briefly. Um, So scroll back in time to 2014, and that is when OSEP launched RDA. So RDA stands for Results Driven Accountability. And they put out a pretty powerful press release when they launched RDA again back in 2014 and characterized RDA as a, quote, major shift in the way that OSEP oversees the effectiveness of states' special education programs. Um, They talk about in the press release how up until that point, the department, OSEP's primary focus was on determining whether states were meeting procedural requirements of IDEA. And they acknowledge that while these compliance requirements, you know, things such as timelines for evaluations, due process hearings, transition from C to B, um, these compliance requirements, of course, remain critically important to children and families, but that under RDA, the department really wanted to shine a light also on student outcomes. So how are our children with disabilities faring in school overall. So in addition to looking at those procedural process pieces, asking questions around how are students with disabilities performing on statewide assessments, um, looking at graduation rates, looking at the ultimate indicator, you know, post-school outcomes, how well are our school systems really supporting students to succeed and thrive? 
while also ensuring that compliance expectations are met. And RDA also, in, in a lot of the language that OSEP shared when it was announced, really highlighted what's in IDEA, you know, that the spirit of IDEA is fundamentally about improving outcomes. So from the law itself, IDEA requires that the primary focus of federal and state monitoring activities shall be on improving educational results and functional outcomes for children with disabilities. And that even in terms of ensuring compliance, the law places an emphasis on those procedural requirements that are most closely related to improving outcomes. So IDA at the end of the day is all about improving outcomes for children with disabilities. And RDA, I think, really recalibrated OSEP's approach to supporting states and therefore states' approach to supporting LEAs to, again, put that focus to shine the light on outcomes. So at its core, a general supervision system is the system that states have in place to ensure compliance with the law. And I think a lot of states are also now saying, how can we leverage this general supervision system to improve outcomes to meet the spirit of IDEA? And we know, again, from an historical perspective or through an historical lens, that there's been great progress at the state level in compliance and improving compliance rates, but we haven't seen sort of parallel growth in outcome indicators like academic achievement or graduation rate. I think many states have really embraced RDA, and many states were moving in that direction even pre-RDA. So you've seen a lot of energy at the federal and the state level to really look critically at general supervision systems, including monitoring, but also technical assistance and PD, looking at use of fiscal resources. How can all of those levers within a general supervision system be focused on improving Outcomes. So some of the changes that we've seen states make as part of this effort to really embrace a results-driven orientation are things like beginning to include results or outcomes data in their LEA determinations calculations and really increasing the accountability system's focus on outcomes. Some states have also incorporated outcomes data into their district risk assessments to either identify districts for monitoring or to shape the focus of the monitoring. And then also the support, you know, to think about the, the data that reveals which LEAs may need additional support around improving outcomes. Some states have begun to really re rethink the monitoring process, um, what's done at a, at a desk audit level or even what's done on site to be more results focused. We've seen several states really want to collaborate effectively with other accountability and support systems within the state agency, like ESSA efforts, you know, how can special education join hands with general education to target support and resources to districts that need it most. And then also just really states wanting to put support behind PD that's explicitly focused on strategies and evidence-based practices to improve student outcomes. So there, again, there, we're in this exciting moment. RDA launched in 2014. So it's been on the scene for a while. And I think states are continuing to tweak their systems and in some cases completely overhaul them to really align with the spirit of results-driven accountability, which is on improving student outcomes. Absolutely. And I think it can be overwhelming, right? That it feels like it has to be a, a rehaul of everything you do that we're like revamping, but 
in reality, I think states who found success have started small, that there are small places you can start, right? So you can start to connect compliance and results when you talk about it, right? And talk about, like you said, access is important. And how does this compliance, this compliance requirement help lead to that access? I think one of the the nice connections I've seen happening with that lately is around LRE, that LRE is not an outcome indicator, but probably one of the most important results indicators that really helps predict whether a student is going to have good outcomes at the end of their school's career. And probably like you talked about and a good experience during their school career, right? And so how do we connect that then that part of LRE is making sure that the right team is at the IEP meeting, right? That they're not just there because it's a compliance requirement, but the reason a general education teacher has to attend. And the reason we monitor for that is because we know that if that general education teacher isn't there, how do we have a conversation about how to increase that student's time spent in general education? And so I think even though they're small, we can start to use that in our vernacular and talk about that although our why is bigger, some of those are good indicators to help us prioritize that. And IDEA even says that our system should be focused on monitoring the requirements that are most closely related to improving results. So I think that's a good place to start. It's hard to establish causality and we're not going to go there with our monitoring systems probably, but we can really talk about the why behind that. And some of those compliance indicators really are about continuing to increase that access to not only the physical space, but also the curriculum. I also think that one thing we've seen several states do, and OSEP does as well, is differentiating those supports, right? That using that risk assessment, especially if we've plugged um, results and, and outcomes indicators into our risk assessment, then using that to differentiate our supports, that we focus where we see a need and put more of our resources there, both in that proactive teaching about compliance and in our using our accountability system to check for non-compliance. So I think those are a couple of ways. I think the other pieces that this isn't something we want special education to do on their own. Like again, what we know about what's going to improve outcomes for students is better core instruction and better access to that core instruction in general education settings. And so There are so many ways now through ESSA accountability and through state accountability systems that we're looking at outcomes and holding people accountable that I would just say another place is to look to see what's already in place and how do we connect to that rather than creating a new results-driven accountability system. Can we put special education into and make it more inclusive, make those broader state and federal accountability systems we're using more inclusive of our students with an IEP? Great point, Sarah. And and hopefully this is helpful to you all for us to sort of reflect and share some of our thinking on these issues. Again, we appreciate the questions that came through and perhaps we'll do another mailbag episode down the road if there are other questions that, that you would like us to discuss. But I think we'll move now from our digestion reflection moment into our dessert or cheese plate where we always try to share a resource or two with all of you that relate to our episode topic today. So we want to share some resources that address the questions or relate to the questions that we just discussed. And all of these resources are posted to the NCSI website, and we'll be sure to link them in the show notes as well. Um, But Sarah, do you want to first talk through the state guide on identifying, correcting, and reporting non I wonder how fast we can say all those gerunds, <laughs> identifying, correcting, and reporting non-compliance. 
Yeah. Suze, thank you. The first two resources we want to share today are the resources I mentioned earlier in the episode relating to identifying, correcting, and reporting on noncompliance in accordance with IDEA requirements. We have a four-page document and a one-page visual overview of the requirements under IDEA. It covers the responsibilities of both the state and LEAs, and where it was developed jointly with Part CTA providers also comes from both the Part B and the Part C perspectives. We will link to both of those resources in the show notes. Thanks, Sarah. And I think the only other resource we wanted to share with you all today is one of our RBAS Fast Fives. Um, We had the honor of interviewing actually five states. It wasn't necessarily intended to be five states for the Fast Five, but we interviewed five states in the fall of 2020 that have implemented results-based accountability and support systems to really learn from them what their journey had been like, and in particular, what advice they would offer other states who were interested in creating a results-driven system. And so the Fast Five that we wanted to share with you all today is called Five Lessons Learned from States in Designing and Implementing Results-Based Accountability and Support Systems. And there's some really lovely takeaways from these states that um, have begun the process and are in different stages of the process of really implementing a results-driven system, but s- some nice suggestions and advice shared. So we'll link that one as well. Thank you, Susan. I'm excited to go back and, and read those again and think about them. Thanks also to everyone for the great questions that you have shared with us that helped shape today's episode. If you have other questions you'd like us to explore or an experience you'd like to share on a future episode, please email us. We'd love to have you engage. Absolutely. We would be happy to do another mailbag episode in the future if there are other questions, um, as Sarah said, that you would like us to discuss. So as usual, we like to close with a little bit of humor. So we have a new soup joke for you all today, and I'm going to share this with everybody and see how good my comedic timing is. So Sarah. What is Martha Stewart's recipe for chicken soup? I don't know, Suze. What is it? I have the answer. So first you boil the chicken and then you dump the stock. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think last time we said we were going to work on our, <laughs> our drum and cymbal sound effect. So stay tuned. We'll get that dialed in for the next episode. But as Sarah said, thank you all. We look forward to producing more episodes of our General Soup podcast in 2022. So stay tuned. This production was brought to you by the National Center for Systemic Improvement and funded by the Office of Special Education Programs in the U.S. Department of Education. Thank you to our producer and audio editor, Sanjay Pardanani. See you next time when we get together again to dish on general soup.